as you heard, using the acronym ACTS. Now, um, as uh, Pete just shared, I mean, it's not prescribed in Scripture. Uh, the format isn't prescribed in Scripture, but it does give us some important aspects of prayer that we need to consider as we pray each day and every day. Um, so A stands for adoration or worship. So two weeks back, uh, Aji took us through why we need to worship God in our prayer, why we need to open our prayer in worship and how God deserves our adoration. C stands for a confession. Um, Alan took us through that last week. Blessed is the man whose sins and transgressions have been forgiven, those that can joy, rejoice in the salvation that they have. So today we're going to be looking at T, and T stands for thanksgiving, or thanking God through prayer. Now, I just want to give you an analogy just for us to kind of relate to. Now, you know, most of us or have had kids or have kids. Um, so usually on, you know, Christmas and birthdays as parents, uh, we try and look for something special, you know, a special gift that they like. And then we take time to find a good wrapping paper that looks cool and, you know, spend time trying to wrap it for them. And then the moment comes, you know, their birthday or Christmas, and we tell them about it, and then we give them the gift. And we all know what happens, right, next. So the wrapping paper that you spend so much time carefully wrapping, in a couple of seconds it's out, right? But if you look at their faces, you know, their eyes are open, they're full of excitement, they're joyful, and they're so happy, and they get down to opening their gifts and playing with it and sharing it and, you know, showing it off. But in all that excitement as parents, what we have to do sometimes is we've got to stop them to what? To say thank you. And sometimes what happens is they do say thank you, but in that excitement they just say thank you and they run away, you know, and it's more like lip service. It's not really a thank you from the heart. But depending on the gift, sometimes, you know, we can genuinely get a good thank you with a hug and a tear in the eye because they're so excited about it. So the question is, what is Thanksgiving? What is thanksgiving in prayer? It is saying thank you to God for being and being grateful for the things that he has done for us, for the things that he's doing for us, and the things that he will do for us in the future. It's also saying thank you to God for who he is. You see, the works of God reflect his character and who he is. And I think Pete touched on that this morning as well. And he cannot do anything that is outside his character. Because everything that he does is always consistent with who he is. So today we're going to go through Psalm 111 to understand thanksgiving a little bit more. And uh, just a bit of background before we get into the passage. So Psalm 111 and 112, they're what we call as acrostic psalms. Uh, it's basically that each line in the psalm starts with one of the 22 alphabets in the Hebrew language. So it's like writing a song where the first line starts with A and the second starts with B and so on and so forth. It's just an artistic way of uh, composing a psalm. And now the composer or the, uh, the, the writer of the psalm is unknown, so we don't know who this uh, psalmist is. But it's interesting that we read Psalm 105 this, this morning because the psalmist is actually meditating on that and he's writing the psalm. The psalmist is thinking about the covenant that God made with Abraham, and then how God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. And then he took them on this journey through the wilderness and finally took them to the promised land. And so the psalmist is actually thinking about this entire story 
and is writing the psalm in praise and thanking God because God finally fulfilled his covenant, his promise to Abraham. So the question is, what is the Abrahamic covenant? I just want to spend a few minutes on this before we get into the passage. So what is the Abrahamic covenant? So a long time ago, God determined to call out a special group of people for himself. And through that special people, that he would bless the whole world. So what God did was he made an unconditional covenant with Abraham. He bound himself to it. He told Abraham, or he promised Abraham that he was going to bless him. He was going to make his name great. He was going to make him a father of many nations, that he would have many descendants. And God promised that one day that he would give his descendants, his people, a promised land. And we know that to be the land of Canaan. So today we're going to be working through Psalm 111 and walking through the journey of how God fulfilled his covenant to Abraham. We're going to be looking at verse 3 to verse 6 in the first uh, part of the, the sermon, which is focusing on four reasons that we can thank God for. And then we're going to quickly go through verse 1 to 2 and then 7 to 10 to look at what should be our response based on what we've learned today. With that, let's, let's look to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you, Lord, for bringing us as your church together this morning before you into your presence to hear from you, O God. We just pray for our hearts and our minds, our spiritual eyes, that you would open them. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us from your word, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us. Lord, please help us to keep away any distractions, anxieties, or things that are troubling us. Lord, help us to trust them at your feet, O Lord. And also I pray for myself, Lord, as I preach this morning, that you humble me, God, and help me, Lord, to preach, Lord, what you want us to hear this morning. Lord, I pray that you help this time to be edifying to all of us and that your name will be glorified and magnified. In your name we pray. Amen. So, the first reason we can thank God for, that he is our righteous redeemer. God wants us to thank him for being our righteous redeemer and redeeming us from the slavery of sin. If you look at verse 3 carefully, it says, Full of splendor is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. And if you look at the word work, it's actually singular. And it actually means deed or something done or the outcome of uh, work done. In simple words, in this passage, what it actually refers to is something that, that God has done. Now, given the psalmist is actually thinking about God's faithfulness to his covenant with Abraham, I believe the word work here refers to the work of redemption that God did in redeeming his people, the children of Israel, from the harsh slavery in Egypt. Now, if you don't know the story of redemption, uh, there's a good movie to watch, The Prince of Egypt. Not everything is accurate, but it gives you a good idea of the story of redemption. Or you can read Psalm 105 that we read this morning. But here's a short uh, summary of the things that happened and what God did. So Jacob, also known as Israel, his sons and his families, about 70 of them migrated to Egypt 
where his son Joseph was the, the governor. And, you know, Joseph was in good standing with the king of Egypt. And their good, their good relationship provided a very favorable condition for the people of Israel. So they began to prosper. They began to grow in numbers. Now, there came a time where many years later and, you know, generations passed, Joseph and his brothers, you know, they were no more, and everybody in that generation had gone. Uh, they were, there came a new king. Now, this new king not only did not know anything about Joseph or anything about the history of the people of Israel and their good favor with the previous kings of Egypt, he also felt very threatened by them because they had multiplied, and everywhere he looked, they were there. He was afraid that if a war broke out, the people of Israel would join their enemies and fight against the Egyptians and then escape from Egypt altogether. So he wanted to control the people of Israel. He wanted to subdue them, exploit them, hold them captive so that he could prevent them from fleeing away and at the same time use them as his slaves. So he executed a vicious plan and he forced and subdued the people of Israel to be the slaves of the Egyptians. He forced them to build cities by assigning brutal slave masters over them with the hopes to wear them down with crushing heavy labor. He forced them to work long hours and he intentionally made their job very difficult. The scripture tells us the new king and his people were ruthless to the people of Israel. They showed no mercy, whether man, woman, or child. And they made their lives very bitter. And as if things could not get any worse, the king of Egypt ordered his people that they should kill every newborn Hebrew baby boy by literally throwing them into the Nile River and only let the girls live. This was his cunning plan to subdue the people of Israel and remove any ability for them to defend themselves so that he could continue to use them as slaves. So it's in the midst of all the suffering, injustice, and pain that God is raising Moses on the side to be a leader. We know that Moses was born during this time, and, you know, it, there comes a time where Moses' parents could not really hide him. You know, when you have a crying baby in the house, you know, the whole house knows. In fact, the whole village knows about it, right? So what do they do? They put him in a basket, and they hide him in the river Nile, hoping that someone would show compassion and not throw Moses back into the river. But what does God do? He orchestrates a whole series of events where the daughter of the king comes down to have a bath, and she sees the basket. And on seeing Moses, his face, and him crying, God moves her heart to have compassion for him. Now, despite her knowing that, you know, he could possibly have been a Hebrew baby, she decides to take him in and raise him as her own child, as her own son. So Moses literally grew up in the palace, and then as he grew up, he began to be more aware of who he was, but not just who he was, but also the suffering of his own people. Again, God does a whole bunch of events that takes Moses from the, from the palace into the land of Midian. God was going to shape a leader and a servant out of Moses so that God could use him to redeem his own people from slavery. Now imagine being a Hebrew during that time and thinking, well, did not God say we are his people? 
don't we believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that he is the one true living God that created everything and that nothing is impossible with him? I mean, didn't God make a covenant with Abraham once upon a time that he was going to make us a great nation? I mean, where is God now? Why are we suffering and why are we getting slaughtered? Where is God in the midst of all this suffering, pain, and chaos? Does he not see us? Does he not hear us? Is God dead? Maybe. Maybe there is no hope. And that's probably what they're thinking and crying out. Psalm 121 verse 4. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And so years passed away and the king of Egypt had died and a new king had come. But things didn't change for Israel and they were still suffering immensely and under the burden of slavery to the Egyptians. And they kept crying out to God. In Exodus 2, we see that God hears their groaning and he says, I remember the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it says that God knew it was time now to redeem his people from slavery. We know the whole series of events, what God does after that. God appears to Moses in a, in a burning bush, and he gives him a mission, and he says, Go, for I am sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people Israel out of Egypt. And we know how God takes Moses right back to the palace where he came from. And God uses Moses to demonstrate multiple miracles. God also plagued the Egyptians with ten plagues that finally resulted in the king of Egypt finally surrendering. In the middle of the night, he calls Moses and Aaron and says, Get out. Take your people and leave. And go worship the God that you've always wanted to worship. In Exodus 12, it even says that the Lord caused the Egyptians to feel, to, to look favorably on the people of Israel as they left. So, so that they gave the Israelites whatever they asked for. So what, as they were leaving, whatever the Israelites asked for, the Egyptians would give it back to them. The conclusion of the story of the redemption is in Exodus 12, which reads, At the end of 430 years on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. His people were finally free after 430 years. God had redeemed his people from slavery to freedom. The reason I went through this entire series of events because this is the Lord doing his work of redemption through various events in history. The songwriter is reflecting on this work of redemption and says, this is the th that it is full of splendor and majesty. God is magnificent and everything that he does is splendid and beautiful. Even when it comes to us, because of Adam's sin, we too were born into the slavery of sin. We too were hopelessly and helplessly lost. Sin was our master. We were controlled by our sinful hearts, which, you know, even today constantly tells us and deceives our hearts to do those things that God hates. We were God's enemies, the Bible says. Despite being evil and sinful and rebelling against God, he still chose us to be his people, and he loved us with an everlasting love. You see, to redeem us, God did the work of salvation by sending his own son as a redeemer, his beloved son, Jesus Christ, the holy, sinless, perfect man, 
complete God and complete man to this earth to suffer and die for the sins of his people. Jesus was punished for our sins. You see, we deserve to die and suffer for our, our own sins, but he was punished in our place so that we don't have to die and be condemned and lost in hell. Romans 5.10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. You know that familiar song that we sing, Jesus, thank you. The mystery of the cross I cannot comprehend. The agonies of Calvary. That you, the perfect holy one, you crushed your son who drank the bitter cup that was reserved for me. And by your perfect sacrifice, I've been brought near. Your enemy, you've made your friend. And pouring out the riches of your glorious grace, your mercy and your kindness knows no end. In Ephesians 5, 1, 5 to 7, I like how it actually starts. It says, in love, he predestined us for adoption. In love. He loved us way before. He chose us to be his children even before we were born. It says, even before the foundations of the world were put together, God knew us name by name. He chose us to be his people. He loved us, he redeemed us, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. Our God is a loving God who loves his people, and he will keep his covenant because he is a faithful God. This is the splendid, beautiful, majestic work of redemption that the loving God has done for us, that he has redeemed us from a life of slavery to a life of freedom in Christ Jesus. The, the preacher, Paul Washer, he, and he says this, the only thing that we bring to our salvation is our own ugly sin. Even our works of righteousness are filthy rags before a holy God. Everything else in our salvation, everything is the work of God because of his love for us. Now, God did not just redeem us from our sin, but he's also continuing to do his work in our life even today. Philippians 1, 6 says, For I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to the completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He is still providently working all things in our lives for our good and his glory. You see, the gospel is not just for the unbeliever. It's also for us to meditate on every single day. Our faith, our hope, our purpose, our mission, our meaning of life, our message is all anchored in the gospel. And so we need to remember the gospel daily in our lives and the work of redemption that God did for us so we can thank the Lord for being our redeemer and redeeming us, his people, from the slavery of sin. Now, the second reason we can thank God for is that he is gracious and merciful. You see, God wants us to thank him for being gracious and merciful to us all our life. If you look carefully at verse 4, it says that he has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. So if you look at the first part of that verse, and it says he has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. And the psalmist here is referring to the Passover, the, the remembrance feast of the Passover. Um, 
The Passover, as you know, was the celebration of how the blood of an innocent lamb uh, without blemish uh, would save the people from the, the wrath of God. Now, as you know the story of the ten plagues, the last, the tenth plague, you know, God was going to inflict on Egypt um, a heavy plague where he was going to kill the firstborn of every man and animal. And so to protect his own people, God gave specific instructions uh, on how they should find a one-year-old lamb. It should, be, it should be an innocent without any blemish. And then they had to sacrifice it, take the blood of it, and paste it on their doorposts and the lintels of their house. And also he gave them specific instructions on how they had to cook it and how they had to eat it with uh, unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And there's a whole bunch of instructions around it. And the whole point was, in Exodus 12, God says that he was going to pass through the land of Egypt. And he was going to go visit. It's almost like he was going to pass over every single house. And the house that had the blood of the lamb pasted on the doorstep, on the doorpost and the lintels, anybody in that home would be spared. And God would literally pass over that home and show grace and mercy to the people within that home. But anyone else that didn't have the blood of the lamb pasted on their homes, God would, would basically release his complete wrath on them. We know that after God inflicted the tenth plague, it says that there was crying right through Egypt because there was not even a single house where someone had not died. And this is the point where the king of Egypt finally surrenders and releases God's people from slavery. But there's something very important for us to remember in this. You see, God did not show mercy and grace to, his, to the people of Israel because they were any better than the Egyptians. You see, you know, we can, we can think that maybe they were God's people and they were somehow morally better than the Egyptians. No, they weren't. They were just as depraved and wicked as the Egyptians. The Scripture shows us very clearly many examples that even though God had done wonders to redeem them from Egypt, and he continued to show his love to his people and his power and his protection and his provision and everything that he did, they still didn't trust him. And they still weren't faithful to him. And they still ran away to other gods. You see a few examples just quickly. Crossing the Red Sea. You know, the people had fled Egypt. They were all happy. They come to almost like a dead end, and then they see the people, uh, sort of the armies of Egypt coming down. And what do they do? Instead of lifting their eyes to God and trusting him, they turn against God. They turn against Moses and say, have you brought us here to die as if there were no graves in Egypt? We should have been left there. We, know we would love to be slaves there. What is going on? And God still shows them grace and mercy, and he's still patient. And what does he do? He defeats the Egyptians. When they came to the place of Mara and they didn't have water to drink, I mean, there was water, but it was bitter and toxic. What did they do? They again complain. God still shows them grace and mercy and patience. And he turns that bitter water to sweet water so that they can drink. When they grumbled to, you know, to Moses about food, you know, this is what they said. If only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt. There we sat around pots filled with meat and ate all, bread all day. But now you have brought us into this wilderness to starve us to death? Imagine telling that to God. What does God do? He still shows them grace. He still shows them mercy. And he's still patient. 
and he provides them what? Fresh bread from heaven, straight from the oven. And then when they wanted meat, he gave them quails. The water from the rock. I mean, imagine trying to lead this many people who are constantly grumbling and, you know, always complaining. Sometimes feels like a parent, right? And you feel, and it, brought, it made Moses quite angry and frustrated. And we might think this is righteous anger. It could be. But in the process, you know, Moses disobeyed God. And instead of speaking to the rock, in his frustration against the people, he hit the rock. And we know that Moses suffered the consequence of that, that he could not see the promised land. But even in that moment, God shows grace and mercy and is patient and he provides water. And the ultimate story, we know this is something we teach at Sunday school all the time, the story of the golden calf. They had the God, their God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who was faithful, who was leading them all the way. And then Moses disappears for some time, and what did they do? They decide to go and build a God of their own liking, in their own definition of who he is, according to their own standards, just like people in the world today. They come to God in their own terms, and they refuse to surrender and bow their knees to God. But even in that moment, God shows them grace and mercy. How? By not wiping them out. Because the first commandment, as we all know, says, Thou shalt have no other God but me. So God is purely demonstrating his grace and mercy towards the people of Israel because of who he is, his goodness, his faithfulness, and his unconditional covenant with Abraham, it had nothing to do with Israel's moral standing. God is always gracious and merciful to his people. For us to remember, just like the lamb, the blood of the Passover lamb saved the people from Israel, sorry, saved the people of Israel from God's judgment, it is the blood of Jesus Christ that washes away our sin. You know that familiar hymn, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. If we have repented of our sin and sought forgiveness and we've put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, then he has washed our sins away. But if you are not washed by the blood of the Lamb, then one day you will face the full wrath of God's judgment and justice on you. You see, the danger we have many times as believers is that, you know, we can sort of build in ourselves a, a false sense of humility and, uh, and spiritual pride, which results in us thinking that, you know what, we're better than the people in the world. The greatest danger with spiritual pride is that, you know, you can't even see it to deal with it because it gives you a false sense of spiritual humility. You know, sometimes our spiritual pride and false humility can also cause us to think that we are better and more mature than our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we become less teachable. We become more about ourselves and than about the Lord. And we even sometimes are dangerously consider ourselves as the benchmark of what others need to aspire to. God did not save us because of who we are. He saved us because he loved us. He chose us before the foundation of the world to be his people. And sometimes one of the things that we take very lightly is that the 
Christ shedding his blood was actually not an easy task. Christ had to humble himself. He left all his glory in heaven, came down in the form of a man. He walked among us. He lived among us. He was betrayed by his own people. He was mocked. He was beaten, spat on, tortured, ridiculed, embarrassed. This is the God of heaven. And he suffered a cruel death at our own very hands. We would have done the same. And he, when he was bearing all the sin and shame, his father turned his face away. You know, that hymn, Man of Sorrows, could not have said it any better. Man of Sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, helpless, lost were we. Blameless lamb of God was he. Sacrificed to set us free. Hallelujah, what a Savior. In the words of David in Psalm 103, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to the extent of our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. You see, God, isn't it amazing that God doesn't deal with us according to the extent and depth of our sins? He's very patient with us. He gives us chance over chance over chance. He even sometimes withholds punishment from us, even when we have not sought forgiveness and repentance. He gives us time to process it. He gives us time to humble ourselves. And when he forgives us, he never brings it up again. So as we recollect the gospel each day, let's remember his compassion and his patience in our lives. And let's remember that God is always gracious and merciful to you and me. But there's one more thing that's very important, is that as we continue to experience God's grace and mercy in our own lives, it's also important that we show the same to those around us as well, to our spouse, to our children, to our extended family, our church family, to our community, our workplaces. Because it can be hard sometimes, especially in the world today, where everything is almost anti-Christian. It can be very hard to show grace and mercy. You see, we are God's instruments and ambassadors in this world. And may the people who are lost in sin, who are just like us once upon a time, see God's grace and mercy shine through our lives and our actions so that they might find hope in Jesus Christ. Now, the third reason we can thank God for is that our God is a faithful provider, and he is always going to be faithfully providing for all our needs. If you look carefully at verse 5, it says, he provides food for those who fear him. 
He remembers his covenant. You see, it comes back to the covenant forever. The psalmist here is actually recounting the stories of, you know, how God provided food to the people of Israel as they traveled through the wilderness. Now, the exact number of people that actually went out of Egypt, actually, it's not very clear. They say it's between 30,000 to 2 million. There's a lot of dispute on the number of people. But whether 30,000 or 2 million, you know, feeding that many people on the go for 40 years, meeting all their needs is no small task that could ever be achieved by man. It is impossible for man to achieve this. Keep in mind, this is a crowd that is constantly moving from place to place. The condition in the wilderness are difficult and is constantly changing. And remember, they're also fighting their enemies as they're going. Unlike these days, they don't have portable fridges and storages to store large number of supplies for their people and animals. They depend on fresh food supply. You know, I, I can't even imagine the supply chain madness that's going on trying to provide fresh food daily to such a huge crowd for 40 years. It's a long time. God had provided everything that they needed, else they would have died and perished in the wilderness. Now, we know how the story, and we just kind of went through it, how God provided water, how he provided fresh bread from heaven, how he provided meat. You know, God gave them everything they needed. And I want to focus on the second part of that verse. He says, the second part says, he remembers his covenant forever. God, provides, God provided for all their needs, not because of their faithfulness to him, but because of his faithfulness to his own covenant with Abraham. Psalm 81.10 says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I am going to fill it. It's almost like the picture of a, 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 a bird coming and dropping food into the mouth of its, uh, its babies. He was faithful to providing food to his people because his posture of favor, God's posture of favor, was always towards his own people. He loved them despite all the grumbling, despite their lack of faith, despite their lack of trust in him. He was going to be their faithful provider because he is a covenant-keeping God, and it's important for us to remember that. His faithfulness to us is not dependent, thankfully, is not dependent on our faithfulness to him. So as we live this life on earth, you know, we're going to have many needs all the time of different types. There's one thing that we can be sure is that God will provide our needs. You know, sometimes uh, as husbands, as breadwinners of the families, you know, we can think that, it is, you know, that we are providing for our families. But the truth is, it is God who provides the job in the first place and a source of income so that we can provide for our families. But not just for our families, but also partner with him in his kingdom work through our tithes and offerings as well. Every need of ours can only be met by God, and it is God who provides for all needs because he is the source of all things. Everything we are today, everything that we have, is from God and belongs to him. Our wealth, our homes, our health, our bodies, our cars, you name it, they all belong to him. They're not ours. Even our bodies, it says we are the temple of the living God. Even our children that we think are our own, even they are given to us by God as gifts. They belong to him. 
But remember this, God also through his common grace shows kindness not just to the righteous but also to the unrighteous as well. He provides for everyone. You know, we're talking about rain, sun, prosperity, health, happiness, personal capabilities, giftings, and the list goes on. It doesn't mean that God does not provide for the unrighteous. But God shows special favor, especially when it comes to salvation. God shows special favor to his people. And uh, he talked about that this morning is that he provided a way for us, his people, to be saved from our sins. Even there, God provided a way. And God provided a way for us to be in a living relationship with a God that created this entire universe. Romans 8.31 says that he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things. God's favor is always towards his people, and his eyes and his ears are always open and sensitive to our needs. He knows our needs even before we have them. And so we can trust him always to be our faithful provider. And Franz touched on this a couple of weeks back when we went through Matthew 6. It says, Do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles actually seek after these things. But your Father, your Heavenly Father in Heaven, knows that you need them all. And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Even when we go through trials and temptation, we can thank God that He will provide us the grace needed to endure the trial so that He can ultimately be glorified and we will be sanctified in the process. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 2 Corinthians 10. I can do all things because Christ who strengthens me. Philippians 4. So if God has allowed a trial in your life, he will also provide you the grace and the strength to endure it as well. This is why we can boast in our weakness, because Christ our Savior is our source of grace and strength through the trial. So we can thank God to be a provider. And it's good when we pray to be specific about the things that God provides us. Our spouses, our children, homes, jobs, clothes, health, Christian friends, safety, protection, and the list goes on. But I also think it's important to teach our children at a young age to pray and to be thankful for the things that they have in their lives as well so that they can cultivate a habit of thanksgiving. They can give thanks for their toys, their, you know, their play dates, the school that they go to, good health, ability to play sports, food, water, sunshine, beach, fun times, etc. We can teach our kids as well. And as a church, you know, we can thank God, you know, coming out of this whole COVID thing, we can thank God for providing us a church where we can freely and openly still worship Him. We can thank God for providing the church where the Word of God is faithfully preached and where we are challenged to grow in Him. We can thank God for providing us one another as a family. There's so much to thank God for, and we need to be intentional. We need to identify His blessings, His provisions, and count them and respond in thanks. The last reason that we can thank God for is that He is a powerful God. And he continues to demonstrate his power in our lives today. Verse 6, 
He has shown his people, sorry, he has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. <clears throat> now, in this verse, if you look at the second part, it says inheritance of the nations. Now, this refers to the land of Canaan, the promised land that God made a covenant with Abraham and said, I'm going to bless your people with a land. And he's talking about that. And that is in Genesis 17, 8. And so, you know, after the people have been roaming 40 years, I mean, um, if I'm correct, the generation that left Egypt didn't get to actually see the promised land. But the people finally arrived, and they were able to conquer, and they were able to finally enter the promised land. I mean, what a joyful moment that would have been. I mean, I can't even imagine what that's like. I know I, I lived through a time of invasion in Kuwait, and finally when we were able to come back home after the war was done, it was such a joyful moment to be back home. In verse 6, the psalmist is actually celebrating God's fulfillment of his covenant to Abraham and his people. He's celebrating the redemption of the people of Israel from slavery all the way to the promised land. But, you know, let's remember that the journey for the children of Israel to the promised land was very challenging. And there's no way they would have come out alive if God did not fight their battles for them. We read about that in Psalm 105 again this morning. Even the entry into the promised land of Canaan was only possible purely because God's power was working. You see, God provided Rahab in Jericho. You know, she lived in the walls of Jericho to help hide the, the spies. Not only did she also hide them, she also protect them, protected them from uh, being captured by the king. That was God's provision. God stopped the waters of Jordan so that, from flowing so that the people of Israel could cross over the river towards Jericho. You know, God defeated the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. And probably the list is even longer than that. God brought down the strong wall of Jericho without anyone touching it. Isn't that amazing? That is the powerful God that we worship. God gave them an impossible victory over the city of Ai. It's a really interesting story. He also stopped the sun from moving so that Joshua and his people could defeat their enemies. It says in that passage that the Lord fought for Israel. The list goes on of the many powerful things that God has done for his people through the wilderness and finally into the promised land of Canaan. The truth is God's power is still at work today in us and through us and within us. Here are three ways that God's power is working. One, it is God's power that freed us from the penalty of sin, and we call that as justification, right? Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes Jesus Christ is the gospel. He is the power of God that transforms a sinner to a saint. He is the power of God that gives hope to the lost and saves them from slavery. Number two, God's power frees us from the power of sin, what we call as sanctification. We read in Ephesians 3.20 that now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. 
2 Thessalonians 1.11, To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. God's power is still working within us to do his will in our lives and to keep us from sinning. He protects our faith and preserves us from falling away. It's not our work. It's all his power. His power also enables us to do good works of faith. God has deposited us in us, sorry, the, the Holy Spirit in our hearts to guide us, to teach us, and to show us God's will so that we might obey him. Romans 8.11 says that the Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead, it's talking about the Holy Spirit there, his power, sorry, the, the, the Spirit of God that, Jesus, that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. That very same Holy Spirit, the power of God, lives within us today. The Spirit of God is continuously working in our lives, as you would know, to slowly transform us and change us, like that song says, little by little, day by day, to be more like Jesus. Number three, it is God's power that will give us freedom from the presence of sin, what we call as glorification. 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5, it's a long verse, I'm not going to read it. But basically, it is God's power that saves us into the fold. It is a power that keeps us in the faith and preserves us. It is His power that will one day also glorify us into the presence of God, where there will be no more sin, no more sickness, no more pain, no more suffering. And also another way that we can see God's power working is through our weakness. When we are weak, then we are strong because of the strength and the power that God gives us to do His will. It is important that we draw and depend on His strength and His power for us to live a victorious Christian life that brings glory to God. God is on our side. He's on the side of His people. And just like the children of Israel, the Good Shepherd is leading us on this journey. We're on a, on a trip to the new Jerusalem, and he will take us there. So in closing, I just want to quickly go through what is going to be our response. Number one, in verse one it says, I will give thanks to God with my whole heart. See, it's impossible to give God thanks with a partial heart, you know. If you're giving thanks to anybody with a partial heart, that's just lip service. And in order to give thanks to God with a whole heart, we need to first have an intimate relationship with God. You see, you can't sincerely thank someone if you're not really emotionally connected with that person or really having a relationship with that person. Anything outside an intimate relationship would be just lip service and fake. Number two, we can give thanks to God in private, which we do through our prayers, but also in public. If you look at the second part of verse 1, it says, in the company of the upright in the congregation. Uh, the, in the company of the upright actually means a small group or a private set of, you know, a private gathering sort of thing. In our context, it could be our home groups or, you know, our family, time of family prayer, or if you've got friends over for, you know, dinner or something. You can, you can thank God in their midst about the things that he's doing in your life. And you also can thank God in the congregation, which is in a setting like this, where you can thank God with your testimony or something like that. But the idea is that thanking God is not just in our personal prayers. When we meet with each other, let's try and recollect something that we can thank God for during the week. Number three, delight in the Lord and His Word. 
And in verse 2, it says, Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. You see, we can't delight in God's word unless we delight in him in the first place, right? Unless we love the Lord, it's impossible to love his word. And if we study the word without loving God, it's going to puff us up and make us proud. But if we love the Lord and we study his word because we love him, what does it do? It makes us humble and it grows us into the image of Jesus Christ. Number, three, number four, keep his, keep his precepts. And this is looking at verse 7 and 8. And with that, because we're short on time, I'm not going to read it. But God is faithful, it says in verse 7, which can also be translated as truth. It says that truth and justice are the works of God. He is the author of truth and justice, so his precepts can be trusted and obeyed because they're true and just. Everything he does is true and fair because everything that he has commanded us is consistent with who he is. The response of someone who trusts in God is always obedience and faithfulness. And the last of all, again, we talked about that this morning, is fear him for he is holy and awesome. This is looking at verse 9 and 10. We need to acknowledge that God is holy and awesome. We need to be in awe of who he is and what he has done for us. You know, they often say, fear the Lord, fear the Lord. What does fear the Lord mean? It means that we need to be in reverent awe of his holiness. He is holy, holy, holy. We need to have a high view of God so that we can have a right view of ourselves and humble ourselves before him and worship him. To fear God also means to, be, means to honor him, to respect him, to obey him, to surrender our hearts and our will to his will in our lives to submit to his work of correction in our lives, and to ultimately worship him. Let's look to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we are so thankful to you for the way you have redeemed us to be your people. We were once your enemies. We once rebelled against you, and we hung you on that cross. We hung your son on the cross, and yet... You chose us before the foundation of the world to be your people. And you sent your son to redeem us, to make us your children today. Lord, we thank you for the grace and mercy that you show us even this day, that you do not deal with us according to our sins, and you continue to show us patience, and your love is everlasting. Lord, we thank you so much for the way you provide for all our needs. You provided a way of salvation. Lord, we confess that everything that we have is from you and belongs to you, O God. And help us, Lord, to be thankful. Protect our heart from being thankless, O God, and help us so that we can trust you at all times. We also thank you, God, for the power that is still working in us, that is saving us from the power of sin. And we look forward to the day, Lord, that when we will be with you in your presence in the new kingdom, where we'll be free from sin, free from pain and suffering, Lord. Lord, help us, God, to be thankful and to cultivate a lifestyle of thankfulness in our private life as well as in our public life. Help us to count your blessings in our lives and to remember your great works. And help us, Lord, to grow in our love for you so, Lord, that we can be truly thankful with our whole hearts.
We thank you for this time. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.